been any long enough, you've all seen books or preachers or whomever who kind of take things out of context, just like reporters take quotes out of context, right? Just how tweets are taken out of context. And we understand what it means to take things out of context. And one of the difficulties with that is our individualistic approach to Scripture. We come to Scripture with our own situations, our own problems, our own difficulties, and sometimes we look through Scripture to find what verse is speaking to my problem. Right? We come first with our set of things that we want answered, and then we look for Scripture to answer that specific thing, and we kind of take Scripture and wedge it and kind of cram it into our situation. When we do that, we skip a ton of passages, or we'll take any passage and kind of distort it and just cram it, right? But if we're too disciplined for that, we'll skip a bunch of uh, passages, and a lot of those passages will skip our psalms. Uh, Because if we're not willing to sort of spiritualize the issue, the problem that the psalmist is having, well then, it doesn't really relate to me. And so what I want to do is help you understand how these passages do relate to you. And one of the ways we need to understand that is to not approach Scripture always with our own individual immediate problem, the thing that's bugging you this week, the thing that's got you disheartened this week, uh, the thing that you wish would be different in your life, uh, your personal, immediate situation. We need to read Scripture, especially the Psalms, with a covenant situation in mind. In other words, not Lucas O'Neill, my personal problems this week, how does this psalm help me? But a covenant member of Christ's community, how does this psalm help me live in a world that's against that covenant community? Now the psalm can apply. When we don't think of it that way, we're just going to read psalms individualistically. uh, And we're also not going to be prepared for real opposition out there because we've been too busy sort of making Scripture about our own sort of smaller problems, even though they're difficult. I don't want to say they're petty, but we don't think community-wide. We think individualistic, and we overly individualize Scripture, and we tear ourselves away from that context of community in which we're supposed to read the Psalms, study the Psalms, sing the Psalms. These Psalms are sung in community. So we think about opposition. Uh, A lot of the Psalms you'll read are, God, where are you? And it's not, God, where are you? I thought I would have a better job by now. God, where are you? I thought this marriage was supposed to be going better. See, that's still, you're not really going to find psalms like that. You find psalms like, God, where are you? I thought I was a covenant member. Why are these covenant uh, community attackers attacking the ones that take refuge in you? Uh, And so when we don't see ourselves as part of this whole thing that's going on, Persecution happens in other countries, but we don't see what, how that's happening here in our own context. We won't really appreciate the Psalms for what, for what they're actually giving us, and the value and the profit that's there for us. And so I try to think about what, what levels of persecution and opposition do we encounter, are we encountering, are likely that we will encounter soon. It's probably becoming harder and harder to be a business owner. If you've got to please investors and your investors aren't Christian and they want you to do certain things in your business that would compromise your faith, you've got to figure out how you're going to work that, right? If you're an employee and your employer demands certain things of you that contradict your covenant responsibilities with God. Now I should clarify, what is a covenant? It's a relationship between us and God, God's community, right? 
Uh, and you, that comes with duties and responsibilities. If you're a covenant member, uh, uh, you're in relationship with God, you can't just do whatever the world says, but there are going to be times where the world draws a line. Do this or you're fired. Uh, for those of you that uh, are parents with kids at home and you have your kids in public school, more and more you might need to reconsider the homeschooling option. I mean, it, it, you may not feel equipped to homeschool, but you're going to have to come to a decision where you go, how much am I willing to deconstruct every time my kid comes home? When my kid goes to school and they teach them one thing about gender and that, then they come home, now I've got to unteach that gender thing all day long, all night long, all week long. Um, how we understand race, how we understand guilt. I mean, this is, this is coming down the pike. You know, the, the Illinois school boards are talking about this stuff. The curriculum is changing. Teachers are going to have to be forced. I don't know in the very near future how a Christian can be a public school teacher. So is that a form of persecution? You have to give up your job. It's teach this curriculum or go take a hike. Well, those teachers might have to take a hike or compromise their faith. College students, picking colleges, I get it. You know, we want to look at schools with good degrees and good curricular programs. More and more, it's not the safe option to choose the Christian school. You think you go to a Christian school and you get saved from all this stuff that I just talked about, the curriculum stuff? It starts in the academy and trickles down to the high schools. And if you think Christian schools are protected from that stuff, you've not been reading around. So more and more, I wonder how many Christians can continue to teach at Christian colleges. How many students go to Christian colleges, parents sending their kids to Christian colleges, hoping that they'll be a little bit safer, and not really. God's covenant community has always been hated. It's always been. And if we read scripture and we're like, well, I'm not really a hated covenant member, our heads are a little bit in the sand, first of all. And second of all, we'll have to skip a bunch of psalms that just don't apply. They do apply. They do apply because we do live in a world that is hostile toward the light. It's dark. It lights its dark. It likes its darkness and doesn't appreciate light intruding upon it. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say about that, it'll be very tempting when you're a student in college and the professor just wants you to regurgitate heresy. The professor just wants you to deny your Christian values and you're like, it's just the paper. You know, I'm not publishing it. I'm just writing a paper. It's just words. And I want you to think about Christians kneeling on the sand or in the dirt with black bags on their heads, and all they have to do is say words. But no, they don't. They take the beheading or they take the bullet. Right? There wouldn't be as many martyrs if it was just words. It's not just words. And when the apostles were challenged on just words in the book of Acts, they didn't give that ground. I'm not changing my words. Because words do count and words do matter. And we don't want to dodge that by go. I'll just write the heretical paper. I'll just deny my faith in the classroom, get the grade, and then if you compromise in the class, you'll compromise in the career. And so we want these psalms to help prepare us for a world that is not with our agenda and will continue to put the squeeze on you for living out your faith. And it will not do to just be a quiet, privatized, individual Christian that is faithful in secret. I want you to turn to Psalm 43. The book of Psalms is actually divided into five books, and Psalm 42 kicks off, Psalm 42 kicks off the second book of the Psalms. 
And many think that 42 and 43 go together. I was going through my record, and I preached Psalm 42 back in 2009, so I know you all remember it really well. Uh, so we won't go through Psalm 42, but they are. it is helpful to read Psalm 42 and 43 together because the refrain is the same, the topic is the same, and there's sort of a movement that culminates in Psalm 43. But we'll be looking just at Psalm 43 this morning. And immediately we see if, we're, if the Psalms are invitations to sing a certain way, to pray a certain way, to think a certain way, to, to look at the world and appreciate God in a certain way, it's an invitation to, to be like the psalmist. We see immediately that it's okay to express frustration to God if it's for the right reason. Now many of us express frustration to God maybe for not the greatest reasons. It's because I'm uncomfortable right now and I shouldn't be uncomfortable. I'm not getting my way in life right now. And the psalmists don't really do that. They don't give us permission to do that. But there is a way to express frustration if your frustration is for the right thing. Look at how he starts in verse 1. Now, we don't know the exact historical context. Here's what we know. Somebody is not in Jerusalem anymore. They're out in the mountainous region. They're not in the temple. They're not with the congregational worship anymore. They're out there somewhere. And there's some kind of opposition, a man or a group of people led by a person that is oppressing this person. We don't know who the person is. We know they're a member of God's covenant community. And here's how 43 starts in verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. Well, is it a man or is it people? It's probably a people led by a man. And the people are like this person that he's describing. This deceitful, unjust person leads an ungodly people uh, against my cause. And I'm looking for vindication. Verse 2 gets a little complaining, right? For you, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. And so what you need to understand is the enemy is not your boss, your mother-in-law, your annoying neighbor. It's covenant enemies, not individual villains. Covenant villains, and that might be your boss, that might be your neighbor, but it's when it is for your faithfulness that you're oppressed. It's not just random discomforts in life that everybody gets. This psalm is not applicable to non-Christians. If it were about random discomforts and things that upset you in life, it would be applicable to everybody. It's not. It's applicable to those who are in covenant community or catching heat for being in covenant community. In this person's case, they're kept from the covenant community and not allowed to go worship in the temple like he wants to. And so he's asking God, vindicate me, which is a word we don't use very often, but it's uh, show that I'm right and they're wrong. Because the way things look right now, it looks like I'm wrong and they're right. You know, they're getting whatever they want. They get to do whatever they want. They're calling all the shots. And all I want to do is do the Christian duties or the covenant duties that I'm supposed to be about doing, and they're not letting me do those things. So vindicate me, God. Show that I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. That they deserve suffering and that I deserve freedom from suffering. They're the ones that are deceitful. They're the ones that aren't just. And increasingly in our world, it's the Christian beliefs that are viewed as unjust in a reversal of things. But it's based on what? Deceit. They're deceived 
as to what is just and what is unjust. And they are unjustly persecuting this covenant member of God's community. And so he's asking God in frustration, but in a, in a reined-in frustration, a theological frustration, right? We take refuge in you, and it looks like either you're not much of a refuge or you really don't love the people that take refuge in you. I mean, that's implied. He doesn't quite say that. That's, that's what he's saying. <laughs> but why, why is this happening to me if I take refuge in you? The reason why it doesn't make sense, the reason why it's a frustration is because God is a God of refuge, and he does love his covenant people. And the reason why I say love is because, uh, you know, I'm reading in the ESV, and he calls them an ungodly people. Really, the, 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 the literal Hebrew is an unloved people. No said that grand mercy and love and kindness that God grants specifically to his covenant community, these people don't have that. You know, some religions call uh, the others infidels, right? They lack faith. Interestingly here, he calls them, they lack love. They're the unloved. Well, what are we? We're the loved. But if we're loved and they're unloved, if we have your hesed and they don't have your hesed, we take refuge in you, and they don't take refuge in you, why are things going this way, on the up for them and in a downward spiral for me? They have each other, I feel alone. They get to do what they want, and I'm getting robbed of the things that I know you want from me. These are the things you teach me to do, and they're oppressing me for it. And so he asks, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Now, I want you to understand, we're not supposed to read this and go, what a dummy. Uh, you know, God doesn't do that. God is not in charge of persecution. People are. Yeah, but in a grand scheme, God is letting it happen. He, he's not just letting God off the hook. I know these enemies are doing what they're doing, Lord. Why pray to God if God's like, I don't know, I they voted that way. There's too many people in the house. I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on. Of course God knows what's going on. And so there is a sense in which God doesn't commit sin, but he does put it in God's lap. Hey, God, this is happening. I know you're doing it. There's a way and sense in which you're doing it. It's your rejection. Now, maybe this person deserved it. There's other places in, in scriptures where they know they deserved it, so there's repentance. But there's not repentance here. Here it looks like you know, I'm doing what's right, and I'm, I'm getting oppression for doing what's right, not for what's doing what's wrong. It's not because I've been unfaithful, it's because I've been faithful. And that's the dilemma. That's why it's hard, and that's what I'm grieving. He says, I go about mourning with a you, not in the morning, right? But grief and sorrow, and he's lamenting the fact that I'm doing what's right, I want to be a worshiper, and I'm getting, I'm getting harassed heavily for it. And so he asked God to vindicate him and defend his cause. Now, if you remember last week in Psalm 73, we saw that his prayer is for God's cause. Remember that? It's God's cause, not my cause, my personal, individual agenda. I need to pray God's agenda, what God is doing. So which one is it? Psalm 73, pray for God's cause, or Psalm 43, pray for my cause. When your cause is God's cause, you can pray both. And you remember that? Uh, 
popular verse, Psalm 70, uh, 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and what will he do? Give you the desires of your heart. When will God give you the des- what your heart desires? When the delight of your heart is him. So when your agenda is his agenda, then you can ask God to come into your life and defend your agenda. Because it's his. It's a covenant agenda. Uh, he wants to return to the temple and, and praise. We'll see that in just a moment. That's what he wants to do, and that's what he's being kept from. And so his cause is God's cause, and he wants God to step in and defend their cause, the covenant cause. But instead, he's walking around. I go about mourning. He walks around in grief. He's rejected, and he feels the oppression of the enemy. And so this is a very particular kind of suffering that I think I don't want to sound... Um, you know, pessimistic. Um, but I think increasingly we'll see this happening. And these psalms will become more and more relevant. We have to lean on these to prepare ourselves for a world that is not okay with you. He says in verse 3, he doesn't, he doesn't just want the suffering to go away. He wants the oppression to go away so that he can do something. The oppression is getting in his way, not just making him uncomfortable, but it's getting in the way of his objectives as a covenant community member. Look at 3 and 4. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me where to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Right, That's God's temple in the Old Testament. Then I will go to the altar of God, that altar that's there in that temple worship place. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, the stringed instrument of old. Oh God, my God. You're not their God, you're my God, and I want to worship you, I want to enjoy you, and I want to enjoy you in a specific place, surrounded by specific people, doing a specific thing. I want to get back to a worship service. And this oppression is keeping me from being involved in the worship service, and it's killing me. That's what I'm mourning. Do you see the issue when we're like, well, if it were about job loss, I'd really feel that. If it were about the fact that I was diagnosed with a disease, and I'm like, oh, my life is going to be shorter. I mean, that's painful, Pastor. I know. But we don't have psalms about that. We have psalms about this. Worse than a disease. Worse than taking a hit on pay. Worse than not being famous or losing some friends is being robbed of the opportunity to worship in the gathering of God's covenant community. That's worse than the things that we flip around in the Psalms hoping it would address. We need to get to that place where that counts more for us than those other things. What he longs for What he desires is not just, Lord, help them to stop poking at me and help them to go away. No, I want to go somewhere. The problem is not that they're hurting me. The problem is that they're hurting me by keeping me from something. What are they keeping him from? Worship with his assembly. He wants God's light and truth to come to lead him, quite literally, physically lead him back to a place, the holy hill, God's dwelling, the altar of God, Because God is his exceeding joy, and that's where worship transpires. He gets very practical. I want to praise you. He's just closing his eyes and thinking about picking up that instrument and playing it for the glory of God. 
I want to get back there. And I can't. I'm in hiding here. I can't do that. I want to get back there. Would you please bring me back? And so you see that the context of the psalm and what he's longing for is not a private faith. It's a corporate one. And I think we probably too easily are okay with an individualized faith. Why can't he just stay hanging out there in the mountains? He's obviously not dead yet. He must have found a good hiding place. He's chill enough to write out a psalm. Why is that not okay? It's not okay because the covenant community is not a bunch of individuals living out their individual consumeristic kind of faith. But it's a corporate faith. It's a longing to be in the assembly. Now, we might say, yeah, but in the Old Testament, they had to worship in the temple. There was a physical, geographical location they had to go. Otherwise, there is no altar. There is no sacrifice. Right? They have to be in this place. And we're not that. You know, we're the body of Christ you know, Paul tells us we're the temple, right? So there's not a physical, geographical location anymore, but wherever Christians are, that's God's temple. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 tells them, don't you know? Tells the Corinthian congregation, don't you know? You are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16. You are God's temple, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. I know many Christians use that to talk about why we shouldn't, you know, get tattoos or or chastity issues, which Paul actually goes after in that, in that letter. But interestingly, in the Greek, as in with Spanish and other language, uh, you can be you individual or you everybody. Uh, so the best way to translate that is, don't y'all know that y'all are the temple. See, we read that and like, oh, I'm the temple, Lucas O'Neill, I'm the temple. I don't have to go to a temple. Paul says, no, 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 the Corinthians, you're the temple. You, plural, not you, the individual. Read it as a community, a covenant member of, of a people, a group, an assembly. That's the temple. I don't get to detach myself from the temple and call myself a temple, and I can just worship detached from the community. Now, if you're locked in a jail cell, you are on your own. It doesn't mean you can't pray, you can't read the scripture, you can't sing songs. God is everywhere. He's everywhere present. This psalmist isn't going, ah, I can't pray because I'm not with the people. He's praying in isolation, but what he's praying is to get back to the community. And the worst thing that can happen to him as you're reading this is to be robbed of the opportunity to be a part of that temple. And even in the Old Testament, was it really about bricks and mortar and geographical location, or was it the gathering and the assembly of the people themselves? He can play the liar on his own. He wants to play the liar with people. To hear other voices. Think of Colossians 3. Singing to one another. It's how we teach each other. It's how we admonish one another. It's encouraging one another. We need the one another's. And the difficulty we're facing is that as persecution gets hotter, opposition to Christianity gets hotter in this country, uh, so are the many opening venues and avenues for privatizing your faith. Get your own copy of Scripture. You can download whatever YouTube preacher you want. You can stay at home. You can stream. How long are you okay with that? I understand we can debate about COVID, the virus, and everything like that. I'm speaking for myself. This is not an official statement of the whole church. It's not like an elder's official statement. So I don't want... This is me. But as I read Psalms like this, I wonder 
how scared this psalmist would have to be to not gather in the temple. I mean, an army has to chase them to not gather in the temple. What does it take for us to not gather? I'm not saying the virus is persecution. I'm just saying being kept from the temple should be a big enough problem that it would take an army of persecutors to keep you from it. It's not okay with him to be on his own worshiping God. That's not okay. And he wants to get back there, and he wants to get to the altar. Of course, that altar reminding him of how he's in covenant community. The shattered, broken animal with the blood spilled, is, that's happening to the animal because it's what should happen to him. And the only reason why he can take refuge with God is because something else, someone else, takes that punishment, that wrath that should be on him. That exchange is why he's in the covenant community. But he doesn't get to just appreciate that on his own. We appreciate that together. It's always been like that. It's not a New Testament thing. It's always been like that. This plurality of faith that we do together. And so he, in his way, appreciates the centrality of Christ to his faith because, of course, those sacrifices, that altar, prefigures Christ. And that's why when we take communion, we realize it's the new covenant we're in. The new covenant is possible. This relationship we have with God is possible because the broken body of Christ, the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, he is the animal on that altar that makes community with him, communion with him possible. But Christ brings us into his body, and his body is plural. And that's what we should long for. Finally, the way he closes out the psalm, he starts with his lament, asking God to vindicate him, defend his cause. We see a little bit more about what his cause actually is in verses 3 to 4. He wants to be in worshiping community with his worshiping people. And he's this ownership of God. It's, you're my God and you're my exceeding joy, verse 4. Oh God, my God, he longs for him. And verse 5 teaches us that when we're in situations like this, we need to remind ourselves that one way or another, God does vindicate his people. One way or another, God does vindicate his people. And he banks on that to survive his uh, exile. He says in verse 6 or verse 5, this is the refrain that's twice in in Psalm 42, and then ends Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Like he can go back up to the previous verses and be like, I just said why. I mean, he knows why. He just laid out his reasons why he's in turmoil. But then it's like another hymn, another voice, another part of him that comes alongside and says, honestly, though, why, though? The reason why you're in turmoil is because you're tempted to think that this is going to last forever. You're tempted to think that God really isn't a refuge, that God may not actually come in and vindicate you. So I'm here to remind you, self, that God is not like that, that he is actually a refuge. And even though right now, right now, with the circumstances in front of you, it is turmoil and it looks like the enemy has the upper hand. It looks like Christians are getting crushed, right, to Fast forward it to our particular context. But God hasn't changed, and so therefore you can hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, 
my salvation and my God. I know I'm, I'm hammering this home over and over again, but again, I shall again praise him? Why can't he praise him on his own? Well, he can in one sense, but not the sense that he's supposed to be doing it. He's longing to again praising him when in the temple context. And he's trusting that God is going to get him there. God is going to get him to a place where with the assembly, with the gathering, he gets to worship not with his sole voice and his sole instrument, but with other instruments and with other voices, other people of covenant faith. So he preaches to himself, doesn't he? He ends the psalm with a self-sermon, a self-directed message. Why are you downcast, O my soul, self, right? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, get up! (laughs) Don't stay down there in turmoil. Don't keep walking around in mourning and, and struck down by grief. Stand and look up and trust in God. Hope in this God that hasn't changed. Hope in this God that is a refuge for his people, even if it doesn't look like it now. I shall again praise him because he's my salvation and he's my God. Of course, we know even better than the psalmist that even if our lives are taken from us here, we will only join the grand heavenly assembly for eternity. And that will never be robbed That'll never be robbed. How is it secured? The altar. That's how it's secured. And what we need to do, according to this psalm, is to develop an ability to preach to ourselves even when we don't have an answer. This psalm, like many psalms, doesn't end with a footnote like, and by the way, he was in the temple two weeks later. (laughs) We don't know, even know who it is. And these psalms often just, they have lament and then there's hope, but there's not lament, hope, and then here's how it fit, you know, the happy ending at the end. You know, we get ticked off when we're watching a movie and we're right in this climax, screen goes black, credits start rolling. You're like, what? How does it end? You know, and they're like, well, artistically, we thought we'd leave it open. Like, you could keep that art to yourself. I want a st- full story. <laughs> But the Psalms, the Psalms stay open-ended because they don't, they don't want you to come away thinking that things will always be wrapped up in a nice, tidy bow on this side of eternity. In other words, even if I get killed out here in the mountains, I know God will still vindicate me somehow. And even if the Old Testament prophets didn't completely have a full picture like we do of, of what that is, I mean, even we have a very vague picture of all that. I mean, we're constantly arguing about the end times and how it's going to wrap up. There's a lot of things we don't know. But we know enough to know that God will keep his assembly intact. Whatever happens here, God will keep his assembly intact. Right now, you feel outnumbered in the classroom and with the big show-off professor at the front of the class mocking you for your faith. There will come a time where that turns and you're the one in the assembly and the wicked is cast out. Go back and read Psalm 1 and watch that reversal where this one person doesn't sit with the, in the seat of the scoffers, plural, and by the end of that psalm, the, the worshiper is in the assembly and the scoffer is alone and cast out. And so it may not be on this side of eternity, it may be over there where we get to join the assembly and there's endless uh, opportunity to enjoy God Verse 4, he's not enjoying a worship service in itself, right? 
It's, it's celebrating the person of God himself through Jesus Christ, the altar of God in verse 4. And so his hope is in God. Even if the situation doesn't pan out now, I know I will praise him. And it's because of where I will be eventually that I can have a certain attitude now. My attitude isn't going to change when the circumstances change. The circumstances can be what they are, but my faith is built on something past the circumstance. That's what you need to preach to yourself. What does the world have for preaching? The world, you know, unbelievers, people that are unloved, and they're not in God's uh, covenant community, their self-sermons might sound something like, you can do it, just get past this, you know, other people have done it. Read a real stellar biography, and that'll encourage you. Um, wow, that's really lame in comparison to the hope that we have. Because that kind of hope is wishful thinking, isn't it? It's the kind of hope that you have for your sports team as a season uh, unfolds. You don't know that your team is going to do anything, but you hope they do. Now, that's a kind of hope, but that's not the biblical hope. The biblical hope is sure. If it weren't sure, it wouldn't be much encouragement to him. If he ended the psalm like, I think God might do something about it. I think God probably will prove to be a good refuge. Maybe, perhaps, hopefully. I think so. Crossing my fingers, that's, that's really weak. But his hope is in the sureness of God's salvation. The sureness of who God is, what he's promised to do. And that that gathering, even if it's later, is more important to us now than any other kind of appreciation that we can get in the gatherings that we're in of covenant haters, oppressors, at various levels. You might say, you know, I, I go to work and I'm surrounded by secular people. They don't hate the covenant. Talk with them about real issues. I'm not talking about, you know, theoretical or high theology. I'm just talking about uh, what should we teach kids in terms of gender? Should gay people be married? What is marriage? How do you even define marriage? Pretty soon you'll find that they see you to be at least, at the very least, a stick in the mud, dumb, ancient of thought, not getting with the times, ignoring science, ignoring what everybody else knows has been proven. It's proved. Wow, you must be really, really committed to an ancient religion that just has not progressed. I don't, that, don't, that conversation will happen fast around the water cooler if you talk about actual issues. Actual issues. What we should be teaching our kids. What we think about marriage. What we think about racial divides. Politics. It goes on and on. And you'll quickly find that they may not have an understanding of what the word covenant means, but in very actual fact, they dislike everything about God's covenant. And if you're a member of God's covenant, you'll be bullied for having what they don't have, for hating what they love, and for loving what they hate. And really, they don't hate you. They hate your, your covenanter, Christ. He's who they hate. And the more you reflect Christ, the more you're like him out in this world, the more you'll catch flack for it. That's how it is. 
Now, with that context, we can go to a psalm like this and go, okay, I need to coach myself. I need to be ready to preach to myself these truths. And you won't have much to preach to yourself if your theology is thin and your understanding of the Bible is low. What, what are you going to preach yourself if you don't know much? So, of course, as a church, we try to emphasize growth and knowing things, understanding things, as we roll out opportunities for you to engage uh, jump in as much as you can, and we want to help you understand things. The more robust your theology, the better preacher you will be. Even if you never stand up here in front of a bunch of people, you've got to be able to preach to yourself in times of turmoil. And what you preach to yourself is the gospel. And this gospel teaches that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the altar of the cross, He will vindicate His people. Read Revelation. That Jesus comes, smashes down the enemy. Psalm 2, Jesus comes, smashes the enemy to vindicate his cause, to rescue his people for eternity. We take the hits now, clinging to what's later. Let's pray.